0: The British TV Podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV.
1: Hello and welcome to the British TV Podcast, show number 31. Hello, hello. I'm Ryan in Seattle.
0: I'm Chrissy in Seattle. How you doing, Chrissy? All right. You have a good week? <laughs> yeah, it's been a good week. Lots to do. It's beautiful, beautiful out in Seattle. Cold, but at least all the flowers are blooming and everything's green or floral and it's a nice time to be here.
1: My heat keeps coming on and it's May.
0: Yeah, it's supposed to get into the 40s, low 40s tonight, but back to normal by the end of the week. So we are running a good 10 degrees colder than normal during the day and more so at night right now, but soon to end
1: We've gotten listener feedback, and some of it's very nice. In fact, all of it's been very nice. No one writes, (laughs) you suck. Uh, Someone called me for the way I've been pronouncing Davies.
0: Yes, it's Davis.
1: Yes. Uh, You corrected me on the show, Alan Davis, and Russell T. Davis, and presumably Andrew Davis. So got to keep on top of me there. i got to keep remembering Davis, Davis, Davis.
0: I've heard in Davies in this country, but the Welsh pronunciation is Davis, so... Yeah, I heard Alan talking about it years and years ago, and I remembered, because that's how my brain works.
1: So it's May, and there's lots of season finales coming up here, and all I can say is they're playing with our minds. Three of the shows I'm following right now, Lost, Ashes to Ashes, and Doctor Who, surprisingly, are just doing crazy things and not appearing as they are. I know you don't follow Lost, and of course Lost is finishing its entire run in a couple of weeks here never seen it well you know the people land on this island and of course you think originally it's just you know it's Gilligan's Island is a drama but no it's there's time travel and polar bears and people taking over people dead people's bodies and what's going on I mean it's it's just crazy and insane and and it is definitely one of those what happens next kind of series you know what is what's happening we want answers we want answers and you know now it's all coming out because coming to the end and something similar is going on with Ashes to Ashes which you know Originally, the premise, of course, was, you know, a policeman is back in the 70s, you know, is he in a coma or whatever. And then we've had the sequel series with a woman in the 80s. But again, the whole thing was, you know, it's just an excuse to do an 80s cop show. But more and more strange things are going on there. Hmm. It is not what it appears, I think. And (laughs) each week you're like, what does this mean? What do the stars mean? What are they doing here? I've seen all sorts of crazy theories, you know, Gene Hunt is the devil, you know, they're all really dead. That was a theory that was very popular on Lost for a while. And, you know, there's just three more episodes to go after this week, and it's just crazy. There's interesting stuff going on there. And then there's Doctor Who, which, uh, you know, always has a kind of big season arc going on, and as you pointed out to me, careful viewing rewards interesting little tidbits. So... It's not your typical Doctor Who season.
0: And can we talk about The Beast Below yet? We are going to talk about The Beast Below. In fact, yes. I I, still have a theory that I spotted something early on, but we'll, we'll see if that bears out. Yes,
1: we are going to have a review of Beast Below and the Victory of the Daleks. And your favorite guy, Eddie Izzard, was on The Simpsons last week here in the United States. And ironically, in an episode where in Springfield they put surveillance cameras all over the city you know i just talked about this last yeah. week and how this is prevalent in england and so of course appropriately in the simpsons someone comes from springfield who's from england played by eddie Izzard, and he helps eddie. coordinate the installation of all the surveillance cameras
0: or eddie Izzard is, is it's pronounced okay
1: <laughs> no no if i'm doing does it wrong not you gotta tell me. With,
0: does not does not rhyme with lizard although conor o'brien still thinks it does but all the slowly the other talk show hosts have learned over the years
1: he had a kind of a small part. Never got to do anything too crazy, but I love hearing him. In fact, I think my favorite Eddie voiceover performance was when he was in Rex the Runt playing a very strange alien that yeah. looked like a Easter Island head.
0: Yeah, he played a few different aliens during that <laughs> that run. But I know that he was promised a role in, in Simpsons years ago, but he was told they were saving. They wanted to wait for the perfect role. And he was on Graham Norton's show last year with Harry Shear and mentioned that he had attended some read-throughs of the script, but just to be in the room, because he just loves it so much. So it's good he finally got to be on. Yeah. I missed it, but I'm sure I'll see it sometime. It's on
1: Hulu. So this week's episode, we have news, what's on British TV this week, what's running in the United States, DVD releases, reviews of some more Matt Smith, Doctor Who episodes, and a feature on British actors on American TV. It's not just for England anymore.
0: Yeah, they're coming over here for the weather and the perks, I guess.
1: Taking our jobs. They took our jobs! That's an old South Park reference. Okay. (laughs) No, we're actually all for it, but we'll talk about it. News. Last week, I mentioned The Last of the Summer Wine was on DVD some early seasons, and I mentioned that it had been around for many years. 31, in fact. It is the world's longest-running sitcom. But the producer has announced that next season of six episodes to be shown this August will be its last. Wow. There will have been 295 episodes in total. It was first broadcast in January 1973 as part of the BBC's long-running comedy Playhouse series. Probably the most big name familiar to Americans is Peter Salas, who plays Wallace in the Wallace and Gromit series. But it's basically been the same cast members, and they just keep getting older and older and older. Some of them have actually died off. One is being played by the son of the original actor, playing the son of the original character. And I guess they've just figured that it's uh, run its course now. But 31 years. See, at least The Simpsons never get older. Bart's always in the fifth grade. Yeah. So what's on TV for the week of May 5th through the 11th?
0: Wednesday, Waterloo Road continues on BBC One.
1: There's a Midsummer Murders with John Nettles on ITV1 in a mystery called Talking to the Dead. On BBC4 is a
0: three-part series, Timothy Spall, Somewhere at Sea, with Spall and his wife Shane aboard a boat, even though they don't have a lot of
1: experience. Apparently he had promised himself that he, if he beat leukemia, he would buy a Rolls and buy a boat. And the Rolls keeps breaking down, but now he's he's got the boat. Well, good. Yeah. Thursday, The Greatest Cities of the World with Griff Rhys-Jones concludes on ITV1 in Hong Kong. Outnumbered is back on BBC One. Channel 4's Alternative Election Night kicks off at 9pm with comics Laureen Laverne, David Mitchell, Jimmy Carr, and Charlie Booker promising a satirical swipe at the world of politics as they analyze the night's results in front of a live studio audience.
0: Kind of like what The Daily Show does, eh?
1: This is going to be live, though. The Daily Show. They tape it. It's, well, it's edited, heavily edited. You can see the interviews that they show uncut on the website there.
0: Well, they announced Barack Obama's winning live. They both got very weepy-eyed over it. Oh, on
1: election night, they yes. did Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the regular Daily Show. No, no. On
0: BBC Three, Russell Howard's good news continues.
1: Election night coverage itself of the UK general election begins on BBC One and ITV One at 10 p.m. The BBC is promising 16 straight <laughs> hours of coverage until wow. 2 p.m. on Friday. Wow. I'm actually quadruple booked on election night because originally I was going to stay in and watch it. I wanted to mm-hmm. see what happens. And uh, I have to pick up my wife at the airport. There is a art opening that a friend of mine is having downtown, and there's actually kind of a mini Doctor Who Uh, There's a Doctor Who cruise sailing out of Seattle, actually sailing out of Vancouver, British Columbia, the next day. And so they're having a a going away bon voyage party. And I thought we'd do that. But, you know, I think getting my wife at the airport is probably the most important thing. And then I'm going to just sit in front of the TV and watch the election results because that's the thing I do.
0: On Friday, scheduled to return to normal with Have I Got Election News for You on BBC One with guest hosts Joe Brann and panelist Armando Iannucci and John Richardson.
1: I have to wonder when they're going to record that one. They'll have to be like, as I was thinking, you know, we could have, most people are probably going to hear this after the election is over. Of course, at this point, we don't know who won. We should record different versions of the podcast. Yes, congratulations to Labor for winning the collection. Or, or, yes, good for you, Nick Clegg. Just edit different versions. No, we're not going to do that. It's too much work.
0: That's all on Ryan's part of there. I have not a clue what he does to edit this, but...
1: Sometimes I don't either. (laughs) If I knew it had been this much work, I wouldn't have started it. No, I'm kidding. Wanted to sound good. The sixth episode of the ever more mysterious Ashes to Ashes is on BBC One. A riot in a prison and a hostage situation challenges Gene and the gang. There's only two more episodes to go after this one. And good news for American fans of Gene Hunt and Ashes to Ashes, which we will have in just a few minutes.
0: Okay. Friday night with Jonathan Ross on BBC One has guests Jake Gyllenhaal, Lord Alan Sugar from The Apprentice, and American Idol's Adam Lambert.
1: Saturday night at 6 p.m., Doctor Who meets The Vampires of Venice, written by Being Human creator Toby Whithouse. Hey, yeah, this is the earliest uh, Doctor Who broadcast they've had, and I think the ratings would be higher if it was on later, but Over the Rainbow has got that slot. In fact, what happened is they don't want to go up against uh, Britain's Got Talent, which is a huge you know, 10 million viewer juggernaut, and so they asked Doctor Who to go on earlier so that they would not have to go up against Britain's Got Talent. And I think most Doctor Who fans are waiting for Over the Rainbow to be well and truly over, and then Doctor Who can move back into the 7 o'clock slot.
0: And Doctor Who Confidential will be shown on BBC Three at 7 p.m.
1: The remake of The Prisoner continues on ITV One.
0: Sunday on ITV One, Lewis continues with Kevin Waitley.
1: Monday, Bang Goes the Theories on BBC One.
0: The Grumpy Guide to the 80s features deadpan narration of Jeffrey Palmer, interspersed with comments from a range of celebrities and what they hated about the 80s.
1: I barely remember the 80s. I can't say I was a fashion victim because I've never been fashionable clothing wise and wearing the same things I wear now. And I know nothing about popular music. So the eighties is just like one of those decades that happened.
0: Well, my first job ever was a record store starting in eighty six. But I was into music in a big way before then and and it was kind of it was a mall record store, so I didn't get to just be snotty and like the latest, trendiest thing. I had to learn everything about music. So up to about my my job ended in early Eighty nine. I I know a lot about popular music, and well, then it and then it just gets stuck.
1: <laughs> so when you look back now, though, do you think, oh my god, I can't believe I like that music, or do you still find no. that, hey, that's good no. music? I like it. I like it. it. I like it a lot. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> it's
0: my mom's favorite genre. She loves 80s music too. So I don't know if that she associates that with my sister and I being young, or what's going on, or if she just likes the early synth sound, but she loves 80s music. <laughs>
1: My mind boggles, I mean, just because my mother is so much older than your mother. And, you know, I'm sure her musical taste ended in like in the 40s and 50s. <laughs> Blit Street with Tony Robinson continues on Channel
0: 4. Channel 4 has Darren Brown investigates with the magician and mind control guide finding out if extraordinary claims from around the world are actually true. This week, a medium who claims to have talked with the spirit of
1: John Lennon. So, I got a feeling that his main job here is going to be debunking these things.
0: Yeah, he wrote about that. He's been writing about it on his blog. He wrote some more today and how he would just love dearly for something to be true. It would make him so happy, but that's all he would say.
1: Mm. The Graham Dorton Show on BBC One has guests Brooke Shields, Miranda Hart, woohoo, and Kevin Bacon. Oh,
0: boy. Okay. Hey, Miranda and Brooke, they'll have to stand head to head and see who's taller. I think Miranda might have her by an inch. Because I know, yeah, Manu Miranda Hart is six foot one, and I think Brooke Shields is six foot. So.
1: Wow. Yep. Some tall ladies there. Brooke
0: will get to be the shorty, the shorty on the show. <laughs> Tuesday, Luther with Idris Elba continues on BBC One.
1: Shameless continues on Channel Four.
0: And La La Land with Mark Wooten continues on BBC Three.
1: On BBC America this week, Wednesday, it's the double feature of David Mitchell and Robert Webb Comedies, That Mitchell and Webb Look, and Peep Show.
0: Friday Night with Jonathan Ross is Friday Night.
1: Saturday on Doctor Who is the first two-part story of the season, Time of the Angels. Which sees the return of the Weeping Angels and River Song as played by Alex Kingston. It's easily the best story the Matt Smith era so far, and it will be also on Tuesday night.
0: Graham Norton is also on Saturday.
1: Monday, new episodes of Top Gear. Tuesday, along with the Doctor Who repeat, is the long-awaited American debut of the second season of Ashes to Ashes. Originally scheduled and heavily promoted last year, BBC America decided to wait until they could run the final two seasons together this year. So 16 straight weeks of Ashes to Ashes, which is highly recommended to fans of Life on Mars who may have been a little underwhelmed by the first season of Ashes to Ashes.
0: Sunday on PBS's masterpiece, Mystery, is the latest series of Foil's War, with Michael Kitchen as the detective, now in the post-war period, solving crimes.
1: The Discovery Channel continues the documentary series, Life, on Sunday. Showtime continues The Tutor, starring Jonathan rees Myers. The Independent Film Channel has the Johnny Vegas comedy series, Ideal, on Friday and Tuesday.
0: And on Adult Swim on Friday night, there's The Mighty Boosh at 1.30 a.m.
1: The Sci-Fi Channel has the second season of BBC's Merlin, continuing on Friday night. DVD releases. We've got a bunch of Doctor Who episodes this uh, week. First is The Curse of Peladon. This 1972 adventure with John Perwe was during his period when he had been exiled to earth and so once a year the producers would let him get off earth or the time lords i guess Uh, but there would be a story on his alien planet in which case was the planet of peladon and then two years later there was a sequel story the monster of peladon a six-part story with elizabeth slayton as the companion to john pertwee and also is doctor who the mask of mandragora this is the man sire I hear you let my ruffians quite a dance. Oh, just a short gallop. It's good for the liver. (laughs) (laughs) What is your name? Hmm? Uh, Doctor.
0: Where do you come from? You wear strange garments? Around, around. You're already tall enough, Doctor. You will answer my question civilly and promptly or your body
1: will be lengthened on the rack. Please don't threaten me, Count. I've come here to help you. Sire, let me punish this insolent
0: dog. Wait. The fellow interests me.
1: How can you help me? A wave of energy has been released, Count. It's part of the Mandragora helix. It could do untold damage. And I must take it back to the stars. (laughs) (laughs) Please, please, please,
0: please listen, listen, please. I realize that must sound very strange to you. Let me put it this way. A ball of heavenly fire has come down to earth.
1: It could consume everything in its path. It could could destroy the world. This story, starring Tom Baker, introduced the new wooden console room. Up to that point, it had been all white and futuristic. they kind of went retro for this one. It was set in Renaissance Italy and was shot on location in Port Merion, Wales, which is also famous for where they shot the prisoner. Tim Pickett-Smith, later to gain fame in The Jewel in the Crown, made an early TV appearance in this story. The Royal Shakespeare Company's version of Hamlet with David Tennant and Patrick Stewart is on DVD and Blu-ray, in case you missed it on PBS last week. It includes a making-of documentary and commentary track. Have you had a chance to see that yet? No. Yep. <laughs> you should. It's good. I will. I it's will. really good.
0: I've just been so, so busy recording CDs and things. Right. And, yeah.
1: Freud, the complete 1984 BBC miniseries with David Suchet as Dr. Sigmund Freud is also out on DVD. So let's review some of the recent Doctor episodes on BBC America. First is The Beast Below.
0: Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was a real good introduction to Mr. Matt Smith.
1: Well, his second story...
0: Oh, the Beast Below were going on, all right.
1: We talked about the 11th hour two weeks ago. I
0: I told you when I arrived here, I had quite a splitting headache, (laughs) and now it's quite evident. The Beast Below, I was very curious that she was seen pushing a forget button, and then she found a video that she had made to herself. And I was wondering at the time, is she actually making that from a time in the future, and when she's... Moaning that she has to get the doctor off the ship, it's not about discovering the secret of the beast below, but it's about the bigger picture, the fact that her being there is putting a crack into the side of the ship.
1: I don't think so. I think that before you push the forget button, you're allowed to make a recording to yourself, which of course mm-hmm. you will forget having made, mm-hmm. and then after it erases the last 20 minutes that you've got, this video that you've recorded automatically comes on. And tells you this stuff. I mean, that's what I inferred happened. That we were yeah. seeing things from the point of view of her memory being erased. She goes to reach the push the button. And the next thing she knows, she had her hands on the button, and there's this video coming on. That's what I interpreted it to be. But as we've seen other things going on, it's, it, it it could be kind of strange. But I took it at face value, at least that one scene. I, I did like the whole fact that the. <laughs> I think it made a little subtle dig about the upcoming general election there. Where every five years, you get to mm-hmm. choose to vote to forget or go along with the system. A little satire going on there. I can't help thinking of the way that one tells fairy tales to children. They all begin Once Upon a Time, which allows the storyteller license to fashion a world and set up rules however they want. If you say to a child, once upon a time, there was a talking cat. As far as that child is concerned, they're talking cats. They never answer back, saying, "How can a cat talk?" You've already just stated it as a fact. Once upon a time, the audience accepts it and moves on. In this season's Doctor Who episodes, kind of remind me of this notion, and more in a few instances, we've been reminded of the existence of fairy tales. And so, if we are asked to believe in talking cats or giant space whales carrying entire cities on their backs, them's the rules. I think this uh, The Beast Below was obviously engineered as a showcase for Amy is to convince the audience that she's qualified to travel with the Doctor and make us like and care about her, so that in subsequent adventures, as invested in what happens to her as the title character. In that way, The Beast Below succeeds, but at the expense of making the Doctor look a bit dumb, or if not dumb, rushing to judgment and nearly making a huge mistake. The problem is the absence of the ticking clock. Many episodes of Doctor Who... And 24 and paradox have some sort of countdown to doom with a problem that has a definite deadline to solve or disaster will strike but that's not really the case in the beast below the doctor is made aware of a problem someone is torturing a poor creature and suddenly decides that there and then he has to take some action why why can't they just sit down and have a cup of tea and discuss their options there's no ticking clock of course the real reason is that <laughs> We need to show the doctor can make a mistake and having Amy figure out what's going on. Plus they have to shorten the episodes because of budget cuts, so
0: there's that too.
1: Yeah, I don't know about these short running times, whether it's because of the budgets or you know, because BBC America is the tail wagging the dog that they want shorter episodes, but I'm not sure you can tell a proper Doctor Who story in 41 minutes. I mean, we've got two proofs of that because the 11th hour was an hour and three minutes. Then you've got a two-parter, which gives you plenty of time to do stuff. But in between, you've got these two 41-minute stories, and they seem to go by very quickly, and things are like, what, what, what? But I like The Beast Below overall. I uh, understand what its job is in the greater mythos, which is to, you know, to get us in to know more about Amy. If we're being told that this is you know, fairy tales being told to children, it's not too bad. Victory in the Daleks, on the other hand, is the weakest link in the season so far. It basically existed only for one reason – to launch a new version of the Daleks, who no doubt will appear later in the season. But does it have to be so rushed? I'm wondering if viewers on BBC America are thinking that uh, 20 minutes have been cut out so that it would fit in the hour-long time slot with commercials, but the fact is the whole thing ran 41 minutes and 45 seconds, including trailers and credits. It's too short to tell Doctor Who's story properly. Felt like watching it. It was like watching on a DVR, and someone keeps hitting the skip button every few minutes, and you're just missing scenes. Like, oh, it, what do I explain this going on here? And yet, this is what we're presented with. And even those who liked the episode, several of my friends thought it was pretty good, have to suspend their disbelief that British Spitfire aircraft could be modified in ten minutes to fly in space and attack the Dalek spaceship. <laughs> I mean, that happened really, really fast. And the contrivance of the Daleks have a progenitor device that won't work because it doesn't recognize the Daleks as Daleks, but takes the Doctor's word for it. It's just nonsense. And Amy once again saves the day. as She talks an android out of detonating itself by convincing it it's human.
0: Yeah, they just sort of knew how to do that. Knew that that was what they must do instantly and started doing it. And, it was, and there were weird little things thrown in there, like why is she crying? Oh, her boyfriend was just shot down. Oh. Yeah, the, the, story. the Why?
1: female RAF officer. It almost seemed like a, a plot line that we completely had been edited out of the script, but they left that one scene in by mistake. Yeah. It just served no purpose. And once again just pointed out the fact that this story is really, really short.
0: Yeah, it was... And the Daleks themselves were...
1: My wife laughed out loud the first time she saw them, and she doesn't do that very often. I, I
0: thought they looked like Mini Coopers,
1: so... I've heard Mini Coopers. I've heard Ikea Daleks. Mm-hmm. Someone said last week, Crayola Daleks.
0: Well, just uh, those nice, bright, shiny primary colors, you know, I just... Do you
1: think it was just to sell more toys? <laughs> I mean, I hate to be cynical, but, you know. And then there's that crack. Every season, there's some sort of arc running through it, be it Bad Wolf or Harold Saxon, but the camera's been lingering on those darn cracks so much it really lacks subtlety. However, stay tuned. I'd forgotten just how ingenious Stephen Moffat is, from the plot's uncoupling to Jekyll, and he's been salting some very clever clues all along the way, but nobody's really paying attention because all the focus is on the crack. Oh, the crack's what it's all about. The doctors told us... Use your eyes. Notice everything. What's wrong with this picture? And all I'll say is careful viewing reaps good rewards, especially in this upcoming two-parter. There's something very clever going on here that I've never done before in Doctor Who, but I think we have to trust Stephen Moffat here.
0: Well, that was um, a thread in the Television Without Pity forum. In Stephen Moffat, we trust? Question mark. Question mark. Which they brought up after I think this third episode, and now they're feeling much more reassured.
1: Yeah, because I I had to kind of over the weekend do a reassessment and think, you know, oh gosh, he's you know he waited twenty years to do this and he's blown it. And I thought, you know, <laughs> he did some very very clever things, especially like say in coupling that just you at the end you were just like, oh my gosh, the amount of work he must have put into this thing, and surely he's given this thing a lot of thought. And I think. As the season pays off, we're going to realize how incredibly clever it really is.
0: They said the idea of the crack actually was one of his son's bedrooms had a crack in the wall, yeah. like a big smile, and he didn't point it out to the child for fear the kid would never go to sleep again. I <laughs> just had it paved over, but
1: that put it into his mind that a crack could be very scary. I like where it's going. I, I'm very happy, and the two-parter is excellent. The best, Some of the best Doctor Who we've ever seen.
0: Yeah, it's very good.
1: And it just, I mean, it starts with a bang. The first minute, you're just going, oh my gosh, this is so good. And it just keeps getting better, good and good and good. And then you think, well, okay, that's the end of part one. Although part two will be disappointing. No, 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 part two is great too. It's fabulous. So we're liking that Doctor Who.
0: Do you like River Song?
1: I do, and I liked her a lot better this time. I I thought in The Silence of the Library, she had no chemistry with David Tennant. I just didn't get it. And I've never been a big Alex Kingston fan. I don't hate her, but I mean, I had friends who would watch ER only because Alex Kingston was on there. And I started to do to and I thought she was pretty good. And uh, she was in comedy drama last year called Hope Floats, and I thought that was okay. But this is the time I really, I got her charm and her cleverness and the things that she does. And so I ended up liking her a lot better this time. ¶¶ So our feature this week is on British actors in American TV shows. It's been an accelerating trend the last couple of years to have British actors appearing in American TV shows. Have you spotted them all? I don't watch them. <laughs> well, I'm sure our viewers who do watch American TV have seen them. Well, in fact, <laughs> you see, if you're in Britain, I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, American TV's well, it's been colonizing British television forever, and a lot of these shows are running just, you know, a few weeks afterwards, you know, Flash Forward and V and Justified and all that, so there's a lot of American TV on British TV, which has been a problem for years, but, you know, because we are the sort of cultural center of the world, but we, of course, like British television. So why hire a British actor when there are thousands of unemployed Americans already here? And what's this mean for television in Britain? I may want to focus on one particular aspect, and that is casting a British actor to play an American with an American accent. It's happening all the time, it seems. And nobody epitomizes this more than Hugh Laurie as Dr. Gregory House on Fox's House. You're naked. Then for the record. A little bit cold.
0: I'm sorry. I didn't know that anyone was home. James had an early call, and I was just leaving.
1: Without breakfast?
0: I'm fine, thanks. I'm Sam, by the way.
1: House. Nice to meet you.
0: It'd be nicer if you put this on. So you and Wilson... Thought you were staying in New York last night.
1: Sorry, must have missed the if this trailer be a rockin' sign out front.
0: I'm really late, so... If there's any chance that we can pretend this never happened, I'd be completely fine with that.
1: Hugh Laurie was a well-established alternative comedian in Britain whose double act with Stephen Fry created a classic comedy series as well as the brilliant adaptation of Jeeves and Wooster. I mean, he seemed to be born to play Bertie Wooster. And they would often have him play the piano. Hugh Laurie's an excellent piano player.
0: And then um, Blackadder 4. Blackadder Goes Forth. They were in that together.
1: Oh, and 3. Stephen Fry was uh, played the Duke of Wellington in one episode. Okay, But, of course, you played the very dim bulb, George III. Sir, if I may make so bold, a major crisis has arisen in your affairs. Yes, I know, Blackadder. I've been pondering it all morning. You have, sir? Yes.
0: Socks. Run out again. (laughs) Why is it that no matter how many millions of
1: pairs of socks I buy, I never seem to have any. Sir, with your forgiveness, there is another, even weightier problem. Oh, they just disappear! <laughs> Honestly, you'd think someone was coming in here, stealing the damn things and then selling them off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Impossible, sir. Only you and I have access to your socks. Yes, yes, you're right still. For me, socks are like sex.
1: Tons of it about and I never seem to get any. <laughs>
0: I know, and I spotted that he had a show on Fox. I emailed my mother that I kept expecting him to say, "Permission to let lip wobble, sir." <laughs> One of my favorite lines from the
1: fourth Blackadder series. But yeah, Fox called upon him when casting house, and because they were, you know, deliberately creating a unlikable and rude protagonist, but the audience they had to actually care about him. And I guess they would probably test American actors and just thought, you don't like him." Somehow Hugh Laurie is able to invest that character with charm. I mean, he he says things. Obviously, he's playing an American, but I don't, American actors just don't have a way of doing a put down without sounding like bastards. And with House, you love him because he is the bastard. But the success of House and Laurie uh, opened the floodgates, it seemed, and British-born actors began popping up all over primetime, complete with American accents. Currently, you can see Stevenage-born Ed Westwick playing an American teen on Gossip Girl, Stephen Moyer as a southern vampire in True Blood, Marianne Jean-Baptiste on Without a Trace, and Julie Richardson on Nip Tuck. But the record has to be on ABC's Flash Forward, which has an enormous British cast. Some are playing Britons, like Jack Davenport, Dominic Monaghan, and Alex Kingston. But all-American couple Mark and Olivia Benford are played by Joseph Fiennes and Sonia Walger. And just recently, James Callis from Battlestar Galactica turned up as a mental patient who can see the future. Of the ones I've mentioned so far, I think Joseph Fiennes has the dodgiest accent. It almost forces him to contort his face with his upper lip pursed over his lower one that makes it almost impossible for him to smile in character. So why are casting directors and producers looking over the pond for actors when... America, and Los Angeles in particular, is filled with actors already.
0: I like British actors. They look more real to me. There's something very homogenous about most American actors now. I think Ricky Gervais said at the Golden Globes that everyone else looked just perfect. They'd all the same height, the same bright eyes, bright teeth, glowing skin. And then when he got up there with his crew, they looked like they were from different species. And so maybe there's... Is there a more... um, variety of the of the physical types there. Well, I was talking I, about Alex Kingston this morning and how good she looks, but she looks her age. She doesn't yeah. look
1: stretched. I used to live in Southern California, and it almost seemed like they deported all the ugly people away. In fact, I had to leave. I had to move back to Seattle. And uh, I thought it was my idea at the time. No, there's an amazing amount of good looking people in Southern California, and of course that's where they make most of the television there. And of course the joke about the Brits is, you know, I had bad teeth and and all that, but you know, Hugh Laurie's a pretty good-looking guy. He's a tall guy. He's got very piercing blue eyes. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I think they think a lot of girls would throw him out of bed for eating crackers. Is that the old expression? <laughs> <laughs> so you like the variety, uh, the, the physical look of them.
0: Yeah, I like that. I don't catch them acting as much unless they're true loveys, but then they'd be on the stage, you know, at the RSC, not daring to be on television. I just prefer them as a rule.
1: There's some good looking British actors. Yeah. Sophia Miles was on a series called Moonlight.
0: Well, yes. She's very pretty. She's sort of for blonde, blue eyedness, what Catherine Zeta Jones is for the dark eyed, dark haired, feminine standard of beauty, I think. But my beloved Mark Warren and Leslie Sharp relegated to be such character actors over here.
1: Well, Leslie Sharp is in that period, I mean, that a lot of American actresses find themselves in mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you end up starting to play moms and things like that. And the smart ones like Glenn Close have gone to Cable and Holly Hunter and to be able to get starring parts and they get good parts written for them. But, you know, it's been often said that, you know, we turn forty and Hollywood as a female actress. You're you know <laughs> it's tough going.
0: I would say Glenn Close seems more like a British actress to me. I, I see less ego there and just more about the role and the work.
1: Yeah, one thing I saw was that Brits aren't afraid to be in an ensemble cast, like something like The Wire, which had quite a few mm-hmm. Brits in it as well. They don't have to be I'm the star, it's all about me. You know, they're willing to, to give and take and, and be part of a big show with a big casts. which, you know, a lot of more shows do seem to be these big ensemble kind of things, which to be more expensive for producers, but at the same time if someone gets too big, you know, you can write them out and have somebody else in there. You know, House obviously lives or dies on Hugh Laurie being in there. (laughs) He says he wants more money. They're going to pay him. A uh, British producer named Andrea Calderwood says, quote, Genuinely, it's about an acting craft that British actors have a particular level of training they have, a particular level of technique that they have that American producers and directors are delighted to find.
0: Well, I think the method is really big in the United States. And... um... I've I've been really fond of David Dawson yet, and a few things I've seen him in. He was in with Jane Horrocks in a biopic of Gracie Fields, and then he was in the last series of Secret Diary of a Call Girl. And he went to RADA, and he said that you learn everything there, and then you take all these different methods of method acting or learning how to fight, and this, and you stick them all in your suitcase, and you pull them out, whatever out that you think you need for a particular job, rather than just one style of acting.
1: I can't even imagine how you become an actor in the United States. I mean, I suppose you could go to Juilliard mm-hmm. and...
0: Boston Conservatory. Right. But then you, you,
1: you're 22, yeah. you give them a diploma. What do you do now? Where can you go at? Where can you get experience in this country? Well,
0: you know, some of these esteemed acting sh- companies actually do put on showcases for Broadway producers and directors, but really only a handful of people are going there when you can... I think most people are just trying to start at a community level and work their way up and audition and try to get an agent and take classes here and there rather than going and getting a whole degree.
1: But again, you know, in England, you have RADA Mm -hmm. and the RSC. And then there's this huge repertory network. You could play theaters for years there. And every week they give you a different play. And it forces you to be good. And the fact is, no one's really getting rich doing television in England. I mean, unless you are the very tip-top, you know, if you're playing Doctor Who, you're, you're getting a good salary. But everybody else, it's just a job. And so you don't really go into it if you're good because there's so much competition for the other, other parts and stuff like that because they can get somebody else who's just as good as you are. You know, the quality's in there. And so it's great when you watch a British drama, you feel like the guy playing the smallest part Is a good actor. He's not just some extra in there they give a couple lines to. And it really shows there. Uh, Plus, they have a lot of uh, nighttime serial shows like The Bill, Holby City, Casualty. So people can get a lot of experience on primetime television there. It doesn't exist here. I mean, the best you can be on is a soap opera, but I think that's a bit of a dead end because soap opera acting is so stylized and you're in New York City. And it's just not the same as being able to get to play a wide variety of parts. I mean, the English system is just really built to just churn out lots and lots of really good actors. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if you can't do Shakespeare in England, you're not going to get a job. And if you can do Shakespeare, you can do anything. There's some talk that it's uh, cheaper to hire British actors, but unless you're hiring stars, most out-of-work actors in America are happy to sign a five-year contract to be in a series, and they aren't thinking about the money, at least at first. Now, once the series is successful, it's obvious that one reason people tune in is because of the stars. That's when salaries go crazy. But that's just as likely to happen hiring an American in the first place as someone from Britain. In the overall scheme of things, though, when you are spending on average a million dollars an episode for a primetime drama series in the USA, the cost of the actors, particularly if you sign unknowns, isn't really a factor. And American TV is the one place in show business where they will cast completely new people. You know, if they are British or American, it doesn't really make any difference. So is the answer something simpler? Are American actors just crap in comparison to their British cousins? Okay, so Americans, you think there are a lot of, you know, pretty boys and pretty girls, but, you know, are...
0: Pretty good boys, pretty girls, they haven't studied a multitude of different ways they might approach a character in a structured format, like these acting schools over in the UK and Scotland
1: and... Well, let's think of a, a big-name American actor. Uh, Johnny Depp, for example. Now, he started off on television. Oh, actually, he started off in a uh, Nightmare on yeah, Elm Street.
0: Well, he was in a, he was a musician, but he was good-looking and thought he might make some bucks
1: doing He was on 21 film. Jump Street yeah. for years. And then finally, Tim Burton said, I think I see something in you, and kind of launched his career there. And I think he's been helped by the fact that he... Does very interesting choices of what he wants to do, but he obviously had a lot of innate raw talent. He'd have to.
0: Yeah, I don't know that he might have hired some acting coaches along the way, but I don't, I don't think he ever studied. I mean, Harrison had, Ford, I've...
1: the number one box office draw yeah. in the later half of the 20th century. I mean, he was a carpenter most of the time. That's what that was his day job. Right. And then he would get acting jobs when he could, and then finally, you know, Star Wars and the Indiana Jones movies, uh, you know, made him a big, highly paid superstar
0: at 34.
1: Yeah. You know, he'd be the first to say that he approaches acting the way he did carpentry. You know, it was a craft and it's something you practice at and you take seriously. Ed Westwick of Gossip Girl has a theory. He recalls one Hollywood casting director telling him, quote, American actors think about their face and their voice, but they don't use their bodies enough.
0: Yeah, that's David Dawson, the one I just was mentioning. He's got a. Very long, very, very thin body, and boy, can he convey so much with it without saying a word, really. I've seen him in several different roles now. Well, I have saw him on the internet in a few things, and then these roles he's been playing on television, and he, you're absolutely right. His, his face and voice are just a tiny part of it.
1: Well, think about Matt Smith and the way he's using his hands oh, all yeah. the time.
0: He's got a very interesting way of looking people in the eye, too, where he sticks his he has sort of, he juts his head forward and his shoulders up like old Snoopy in the Peanuts cartoon, almost in the vulture position, you know, just gazing at people. Oh, yeah. that's kind of an interesting choice there. And it's very alien. I think it makes him look very otherworldly when he does that. So,
1: He's made some really good choices. Mm-hmm. I, I Very few people are saying, oh, Matt Smith, uh, what did they get rid of David Tennant for? But I think he was an excellent choice, and he's obviously a very good actor, or at least very good at playing, you know, Doctor Who. I find it interesting that over the years, when you need a good-looking blonde in a TV series, producers will often look overseas rather than using the huge pool of admittedly good-looking girls already in Southern California. Australia and New Zealand has produced a number of actresses over the years, including Peta Wilson in La Femme Nikita, Anna Torv in Fringe, Anna Paquin in True Blood, and Yvonne Strahovski in Chuck. I suspect, much as in the case of British actors, there's a training ground of sorts in Australian TV for actresses to hone their craft, which doesn't really exist in America. Hollywood is always desperate for good-looking women who can actually act. But the way the system has always worked here is a lot of good-looking women would relocate to Southern California, go on auditions, but not really have any practical acting experience. I mean, how else can you explain someone like Pamela Anderson getting jobs? (laughs) She looks good in a bikini. Of course, we as viewers want the best possible actors to be on screen, and it's great that a number of them are British ones we've admired for years, like Hugh Laurie. But what's the ultimate effect on television in the UK if so many actors are working in the USA? Is this going to cause a talent drain? There's
0: more where they came from? I think so. They even have youth theatre, which people go into when they're 14 through 18, and that's where people like Jessica Hines got her first agent for working her way through that. You start off at 14 and take classes, and then the next year you can be in the, in some of the shows, and the next year you can have a bigger role in the shows. So um, they're training loads of them,
1: I think. I wonder what the appeal is for um, British actors to come over here. I mean, obviously there's lots of money, but... Weather. They all say weather. Oh, really? Yeah, big time. Hmm. Well, I've lived in England, I've lived in Seattle, I've lived in Southern California, and you know, I don't, I don't mind the weather here, which is very much like in England, but... Yeah, I guess if you like sunshine, uh, they're they're. They like sunshine and the
0: outdoor pools. Yeah, I've, everything I've ever
1: read. Not that it's a big master strategy, but you have to look at someone like Patrick Stewart, who you know was a jobbing Shakespearean actor in Britain. He'd done a few movies and stuff, and then he gets cast in Star Trek as a complete unknown.
0: Well, I knew who he was because I'd seen him in I Claudius.
1: And the big name actor in Star Trek: The Next Generation was LeVar Burton. In a way, it worked out really well for him. It made him a big star in the United States and in Britain. So that now he goes back to Britain, he can get the kind of parts that he wants. You know, the the leads in Shakespeare plays and the theater parts. A lot of British theater is driven by TV actors. I mean, you become famous on television in Britain, and then then you can get the parts because you will put the bums on seats for the theater Mm -hmm. things. Because most actors say, "Oh, I'd rather be doing theater." You know, I, I get the reactions from the audience and stuff like that. But you know, to get the really good parts over there, you have to be someone who they actually know of that they're going to mount an entire show around you. And the way you do that is being on TV. So TV used to be, you know, I do TV to create my fame, but then that's great. The work that I really want to do, which is in the theater.
0: Well, this isn't acting, but Darren Brown feels that way. He does television so that he can spend eight months a year touring and doing theater to lots of people. Oh, really? Is touring yeah. his thing. Yeah, he, he's not hugely into the television thing. He likes them when they're done and is proud of them, but the act of making them he doesn't really care for. He finds it really frustrating and lots of setbacks and having to make compromises and redo things over and over again. I didn't
1: realize he he spent most of his time on the the road.
0: Yeah, he, he tours. He'll do one show for two years. He'll tour all through Great Britain and then he'll play London and then he'll do another tour through Great Britain hitting the cities he missed the first time around and sometimes going back if it was very popular in a certain
1: city, gosh, that'd be really great to see him yeah. live. I'd really like that.
0: I have heard on his website he might be doing Broadway next year. Oh. So I'm saving my pennies now in well, case that becomes an actuality because I gotta go. He's
1: got a new series on Channel 4 and we'll talk about Darren Brown in oh, mm. a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, you can see a lot of British actors just by turning on the TV. Next week, we'll talk about Simon Nye. Yeah. Simon Nye is writing the Doctor Who episode that'll be on not this week but next week, and so we'll introduce you to him. He is a sitcom writer, mostly yeah. famous for Men Behaving Badly. Be Amy
0: and the Doctor on the couch with lots of lager and watching telly. I don't
1: suspect they're going to be using the uh, Men Behaving Badly template. I think there. they'd use
0: the set even. That would be cool.
1: <laughs> it's not going to happen. Okay. But Simon Nye's done a lot of comedies, uh, some good ones and some bad ones. He's very prolific, and uh, it'd be kind of fun to kind of talk about him. Because at the time, Maybe Even Badly was huge in Britain and even spawned a series that ran two years over here.
0: Oh, yeah, it did. I remember that, sort of. I, re- I remember that I knew it was on.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it lasted more than a season, which for American TV these yeah. days is saying a lot. Meanwhile, we'd like you to go to our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com, and there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, our archive of our previous 30 shows, and you can send us feedback at feedback at britishtvpodcast.com. dot com.
0: Feed us, yes, we love the feedback.
1: It is nice to get that. I appreciate you doing take the time to do that from your busy podcast listening time. So we have the election this week, and uh, we'll probably talk about it a few minutes next week, depending on what happens. Just because it's it's so exciting. I mean, usually when it's going to be this huge route, it's like you no know, boring. There may be a hung parliament next week, so we'll see and so anything you're looking forward to
0: i'm looking forward to ridding myself of this migraine i've had for about three days now. okay <laughs> i should be much clearer and peppier on my toes next week
1: okay and we talk don't about...
0: generally last more than a few days so this might be it
1: <laughs> all right well you get well soon all righty okay bye everybody see you next week
0: goodbye <laughs>